Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who has had a long and distinguished career. He has been a chief conductor or music director on both sides of the Atlantic, a teacher, as well as writing a book on the whole business of conducting. It is a real pleasure to welcome Christopher Seaman. Christopher, what a lovely, lovely pleasure to speak to you today. Likewise, and you played for me, which, and you're still alive, which is great to know. <laughs> That's very true. I remember playing for you very many times in Birmingham. Um, I wonder whether we could go right back to the very beginning and you could tell us how music first entered your life, Christopher. Yes. Um, I was born just before the war ended. My father was away in the army and we lived with my grandparents near Canterbury. My grandmother had a beaten up upright piano and I found I could play a tune on it with one finger. And it so happened that my parents, the father had come home by then, um, had a, he had a colleague teaching in the same school. They were both uh, school teachers and was a musician. He would come to tea as people used to hmm. and I'll oh, play your tune for Mr. Vaughan. I'd play with one finger and he'd say, send him to Miss Bridge. Now, Miss Bridge was a marvelous piano teacher in Canterbury who specialized in piano, particularly in oral training, tonic solfar, mm. where the do is the keynote, in, other than solfege, where you name the notes like a typewriter. But mm. do is, so in A-flat major, A-flat is do. Mm. So she taught me that. And uh, then I got to the choir school, the cathedral choir school, and um, sang as a chorister there for five years, started the violin. Then I went to the senior school there where I heard about the National Youth Orchestra. Mm. And by that time, I decided I would like to be a conductor. Aged, I was 12 when I decided that, I think. <laughs> and um, someone said, oh, join the National Youth Orchestra percussion section. And I said, well, I, I've never, all right. So I was allowed in. They take you as a general musician. And my first concert, I was assistant triangle. <laughs> and the principal, the, the principal triangle was a girl you know from the Birmingham Orchestra, Margaret Cotton, Maggie. Oh Cotton. yeah, Maggie. Yeah. Well, yeah. Maggie's. I was from down south, and Maggie was from Huddersfield, and she mm. thought I was a real jumped-up git and gave me a terribly <laughs> hard time. And we've laughed about it since. You know, we've become friends, of course. So I had five years in the National Youth Orchestra, and then uh, managed to get a music scholarship to Cambridge, King's College where I studied for three years. And then I decided to chance my arm in London. And I went to a conducting course at the Guildhall School. But after about a term and a bit, I got a phone call out of the blue. This is the London Philharmonic Orchestra, it said. Hmm. We hear you're a percussion player. Would you like to come and do an audition? We're looking for people. And I said, well, not really. I'm a conducting student. And he groaned, of course, <laughs> <laughs> and said, look, um, you might get a, a few gigs playing for good people and you might learn something. So I turned up to this audition and I'd played mainly timpani quite a lot. And uh, they'd heard about me through some student of this particular member of the board. So I turned up and I played timpani. That was OK. Side drum or snare drum. Uh, not quite so good. Xylophone, not good at all. And as I went along the line of percussion instruments, it got worse and worse. But they gave me a concert on the timpani. Mm. 
Mm. And I had never played a set of pedal timpani in my life. And I had an hour before the rehearsal start to figure out how they worked. Anyway, I got through the first half of the concert and the second half was Tchaikovsky 4, which as you will know, has a most wonderful timpani part. Yeah, super. And so anyway, I got through to the interval and I thought, look, this is the only time you'll ever play in a great orchestra. Why not go for it? So I knocked the living daylights out of Tchaikovsky 4 and went home and said, well, you've done it now. You've played in a great orchestra once. Following morning, Eric Bravington, the general manager, phoned up. We've decided to offer you the position. I said, what position? He said, principal <laughs> timpanist. <laughs> I said, oh, no. And he said, what do you mean, oh, no? And I said, well, I'm a conducting student, you know. And he said, oh, I know, but look, we'd like you to do well as a conductor. We know you won't be here forever. You'll learn a lot. We think you're good and we'd like to have you in the orchestra. So I quickly phoned round a whole mass of people and they all gave me the same advice. Do it, but don't stay too long. Yeah, yeah. So I had four wonderful years in the London Philharmonic with colleagues. I mean, they were so supportive. Yeah. And one or two in particular. So during those four years, uh, I mean, the, the thought that, that instantly popped into my head is, you know, that we both played in orchestras and you learn so much from watching conductors and watching them rehearse. Oh, yeah. I used to stare at them. I, I did five Blindborn seasons because that covered, you know, my four years yes. covered five times. And there was an old Italian conductor called Vittorio Gui, G-U-I, who yeah. knew, did beautifully Magic Flute and Figaro and stuff like that. And uh, I adored this guy. And I just used to sit and stare on, stare at him, hoping that something would wear off. And he noticed, <laughs> he complained, what's wrong with that boy on the timpani? He keeps staring at me. Is there something wrong with him? Yeah. And so the, the management had to ask me not to look at the conductor so much, which is very unusual. <laughs> well, at, at this point, I'm going to bring in the fact that I've read your wonderful book. Um, oh, called, thank you. Called, called oh, Inside Conducting. Oh, you day. No, no, no. I've, re I, I've read it and... Why it's a wonderful book is there are so many anecdotes of the time, and I was flicking through it yesterday, and I'm going to read, or probably misquote yes. what you said, but it's something to do with those four years in the orchestra and how the world has possibly changed, or maybe not, but maybe you could tell us. There's a line where you mention somebody talking to you or to a colleague, pointing to the conductor and saying to you or the colleague, that person there from this day on is your mortal enemy, pointing at the conductor. Um, well, even when I joined the profession in the in the early 90s, there was an element of that still going on. Do you remember that? And do you think that attitudes have changed now between players and orchestras uh, from those days to the present day? Well, um, from a practical point of view, uh, conduct conductors in those da days had enormous power over who got the sack. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, in a practical way, you had to really take care of yourself and make sure you kept your powder dry mm. in front of the conductor. I never got trouble, but as a player, mm. I never had trouble from conductors. That's very significant that I use that language, isn't it? Yes. I never got trouble, but I always imagined them. I've thought about this a lot. I thought of them the way I'd think of someone standing at the other side of a table tennis table. We mm. were playing together but just remember <laughs> that you both want to win. 
Yeah, and well, um, especially on your instrument, Christopher, on the timpani. I mean, yes, yes. You know, when I first um, started, when I first started conducting, my colleague in the CBSO, Peter Hill, said to me, "If you make friends with anybody, musically or actually in the TQ, make sure it's the timpanist, because if you fall out with the timpanist of an orchestra, he or he or she can easily make your life a misery." Well, I have to say, my I mean, Peter is the most wonderful timpanist. We worked yeah. together a number of times, of course. I know what he means, but. I have to say that I never messed a conductor up. Mm. I, I mean, even though I didn't like them, and even though I might not have agreed with their interpretation, I always played my heart out. And mm. I mean, a real professional say, is, should be able to say, I don't like this conductor. I find him unpleasant, he's irritating. I don't like the way he's doing this Brahms symphony, but I will do it his way and I will play my heart out. Mm, and that yeah, is absolutely. the professional duty of a player. Mm. And that may be an old fashioned thing to say, but the best players I know in around the various orchestras are very much like that. Of oh. course, if you're if there's a big oboe solo, the conductor will be very foolish to mess the principal oboe about. I mean, <laughs> there are sort of limits um, and you, you it's a two way relationship. Yeah. In a way, you're enabling the orchestra to play well, but I played best when I knew what the conductor wanted. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's yeah. leadership. Yes. And people want leadership. They, they use different words for it, you know? Mm. And, um, but what they actually want is this is the way we're doing it. And then for it to be clear, we're doing it this way. And it should be possible to do that without having a go at anybody. Hmm. Uh, I was asked this question yesterday, actually, by the CBSO Chorus, and I'll ask the same to you, because it's a very interesting question. Three or four years, I'm assuming you carried on studying, conducting, and, and had either private lessons or master classes. I've never had a lesson in my life. Ah, okay. <laughs> um, well, the question still stands. Did your attitude change during your four years to conducting as you started to conduct yourself? Did it change towards the conductors or was it always pretty much the same as you've said you treated each other with respect well i you see i was the new boy and i didn't know anybody and i didn't know anything i had to join the union to do that trial concert mm. i mean i was green as grass but during that time i of course i became much more experienced mm. and a lot of the pieces i was playing for the first time uh, which was a challenge some of the tricky ones however um by the time I left, I mean, Heitink and I got along really well personally, and I went to Amsterdam, we talked a little bit, I went to his rehearsals. Bolt was very, very good to me, mm. and very encouraging. And when I took over the BBC Scottish as chief conductor, he used to listen to my broadcast. I've got a whole mass of his letters. He'd like some things, he didn't like other things. Mm. Uh, absolute collector's piece, mm. and it includes a complete description of Nikish, who's the father of modern conducting, one of Bolt's mentors, a complete description of how Nikish did Tchaikovsky Fifth. <laughs> wow. In Bolt's handwriting. Uh. Now, he was very good to me. John Pritchard was the principal conductor for some of the time. He was very kind to me. So conductors treated me well. And um, I suppose they knew, uh, I mean, I had a bit of a mouth on me. Occasionally I'd talk <laughs> back. I mean, I remember Silvestri coming and uh, some piece was on the programme and he looked round the auction and said, do you know this piece? 
Well, of course, every orchestra says yes yeah. when you say that, <laughs> because if you say no, you're afraid you might rehearse it. You see, you don't want that. <laughs> so do you know this piece? Yes was the chorus that I said, we thought we did. <laughs> now, he didn't get that, but the orchestra totally fell about. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I mean, there was good talk back. It's, I mean, I love talk back, so long as it's good. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, can I tell you about the best bit of talk back I ever had? Which Please is actually do. The book. Well, I was with one of the Australian orchestras and um, eight double basses and a long line, you see, in the usual spot, it was half to the right-ish. Mm. And um, there was a big entry for the double basses rehearsal, one of the rehearsals, I turned around, looked at them, one of these eight players is looking at me. <laughs> so I stopped, I said, basses, come on, big lead like that, eight of you, only one of you is looking at me. <laughs> the principal bass turned to his section and said, okay, you bastards, own up, which of you was it? <laughs> Oh, wonderful. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that is... Then, you see, here's the sad thing. At the break, he came round abject with apology. I said, oh, don't apologise. <laughs> I'm dining out. I'm dining out. And you're kind enough to mention the book. Um, mm. One of the chapters I was most pleased with was the one on orchestral playing. And um, that I felt I'd said quite a lot of the important stuff, you know. Well, I remember reading the book thinking this is gold dust to any young conductor um, oh, thank who, you. Who, who doesn't get a chance to be like you were in Scotland, um, an assistant conductor. You know, somebody who's just left college and gets a job as an assistant, then they get to, they get to see orchestras in action. They get to see them behind uh, the stage, in the TQ, in the pub, and they they learn the attitude of players. But, but I think reading your book, you get a real... Uh, that chapter in particular, getting a real feel for what, what it's like. Um, and a lot of those attitudes haven't changed, you know. I mean, you know, that they're much the same. Um, oh, yes, they are. I mean, we all make jokes about authority figures. Yes, we joke about the tax inspector. We joke about any government. Mm. We joke about the police, whom we adore, respect, you know what I mean? Yes, And uh, we joke about we joke about our mother-in-law, those mm. of us who've got one. Mm. You know, yeah, and true. there are yeah. certain people that we handle the situation by joking about them. And to me, that is harmless and part of life. So, four years, what made you think, it, um, other than you said you, you'd given, been given the advice, don't stop too long, what was the, the catalyst that made you leave the LPO and go full-time conductor? Well, the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra had an opening for assistant conductor. And I wrote up, and I'd, um, before then, I'd taken part in a thing that the BBC Philharmonic, which in those days was called the BBC Northern, Mm. had where you went there and you um did some conducting and you watched uh, that time that time george hurst who became a great friend of mine he was the chief conductor and he was he gave me a lot of conducting and so the bbc scottish dared to give me a concert which included the second Brahms second symphony which i had never conducted in my life but i managed to do it in such a way that they gave me the job and oh, the yeah. orchestra were fantastic. I was 25 or 26, something like that. I mean, which is old for a conductor now, but it was very young at mm. that time. 
mm. and um, the players, most of them could have been my parents. <laughs> They'd all been through the war, or nearly all of them, and they had the give the boy a chance attitude. They had enormous generosity of spirit, and without that, I think it would have been very difficult to have got started. And the same was said by my successor as assistant conductor up there, Andrew Davis. Mm. And then when I became principal conductor, we were looking for an assistant. And uh, I insisted to the BBC that we hired some, someone you will never have heard of called Simon <laughs> Rattle. <laughs> and um, I put my foot down and said, this is the man, we must have him. He yeah. already had an assistant conductor job in Bournemouth. And some people at the BBC thought, you know, there's so few jobs, we should share it around. I said, no, this is the man. Mm. So I'm quite proud of that decision. I think it's a very interesting role, the assistant conductor role. I mean, I was assistant conductor officially with the CBSO for about six years, but I was also playing at the same time. So it didn't really, really count because, you know, a lot of the things you learn as, a, as an assistant, watching other people rehearse, uh, you know, how management works, how you come up with programmes, all of that sort of stuff. I sort of knew anyway, but the ones that have followed me, I think, you know, it's been in Birmingham and as it's as it's been with, with the Halle and Mark Elder, you know, you see these people learn so, so much in two years. Um, I think it's a, a wonderful way in. Yes, my, my, my boss was James Locker, who's a dear man, and who mm. went to the Halle. Um, and I, I was the assistant, gender, but... Um, I really was given a great deal to do in my first year as assistant conductor. I was meant to do 30 um, broadcasts. Now that's a lot. Is, I ended yeah. up doing I ended up doing 45. Wow! Wow! Nearly all pieces I hadn't done before, and it was a very much sink or swim situation. But as I said, the orchestra was so supportive. Mm. And they thought I had it in me uh, if they hung in and gave me the chance to improve and so on. And so I will, that is a big uh, source of gratitude for me. I'm very, very grateful to them. And not all orchestras are supportive of somebody so young. It depends. So long as you don't pretend to be something that you're not. Uh -huh, yeah, exactly. Most, yeah. most players will go with it. Now, some musicians... Uh, in an orchestra have an issue with authority. Through no fault of their own, they had the wrong kind of parent, the wrong kind of teacher. Mm. And if they haven't worked through that, that can occasionally uh, be a bit problematic. But it's just human nature in any situation we're dealing with people, aren't we? Yeah. People and all their good points and all their baggage and so on. That is life. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing we have to do with is the fact that they have lives outside of the orchestra. And yeah, sometimes it impacts on, on their work life. But yeah, it's, um, it's a very interesting role, the assistant role. Yes. Well, I was grateful that I was actually, I was really sink or swim. Mm. I would turn up. Uh, occasionally, I'd ask James Lockton, what do you do here? To serve? Should you do it in four, two, this kind of thing. But he was very busy. So when I was conducting, he was almost never there because he, yeah. he had a career outside the BBC and eventually went to the Halle, of course, where he's very successful. And anyway, um, so it was really sink or swim. But one person I have to pay tribute to was the leader, a man called Tom Rowlett. Mm. And Tom uh, decided I was okay, thank heavens, <laughs> and was extremely supportive. Um, going on, 
we're, through the two years, or how how long were you at the assistant at the BBC Scottish? I was there for two years, and right. then I freelanced for a year, which coincided with the formation of an agency called Harrison and Parrot. Mm. And Jasper Parrot and Terry Harrison, who's no longer with us, sadly, um, decided I was worth taking on board. And so they took me on board. And so for the next year, I had a few gigs here and there conducting, including a New Zealand tour and um, a couple of BBC broadcasts with the LSO. Mm. And then when James Lochran went to the Halle, the BBC decided they wanted me to go back as chief conductor. And then you're set up by a chief conductor of a BBC orchestra. I was so fortunate. And of course, I was still building, expanding my repertoire. I mean, I remember doing the miraculous Mandarin for the first time as principal conductor. You know, I mean, uh. that's <laughs> how it was. That, that piece keeps cropping up, you know, uh, during these podcasts. Barbara Hannigan, I, when, in the 10 questions at the end, her answer to the hardest piece she's ever conducted, uh, she immediately mentioned that piece. Um, well, and it depends it, whether you do it all. Yes, of course, do, yes. If you do it all, it's really hard. Mm. If you do the concert suite, it's hard, but not that hard. Looking at what, the places you've been principal conductor or chief conductor or whatever, um, a lot of orchestras in America, if I can read them out, Rochester Philharmonic, Naples Philharmonic, Baltimore Symphony, San Antonio Symphony, American orchestras and British orchestras, what do you think would be uh, major differences in their approach, if there are any? Um, I, I've never conducted uh, the other side of the pond, but whether you can tell us what you think the difference of approach is. Um, they're, more, they're more similar than you might think. Mm. But there's one thing in the American character that is really helpful to a conductor, and that is when there's something going on, they're inclined to jump on the jump into it with both feet. Right. Yeah, good. In other words, in, a, in, a, in an American town, if Mrs. Smith's cat is rescued by the fire brigade, they have a parade. Mm. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. There's a natural desire to belong and to enthuse. Mm. And that is very, very helpful to a conductor. But, I mean, you still have to be, ta you have to be, well, of course you have to be respectful. You have to show that we're going to do it this way and um, leadership, but you have to be respectful and you have to allow all the artistry of the orchestra to come out. Not so. I remember a wonderful comment about the old conductor Gooey at Glyndebourne. Mm. Um, someone else had been conducting an opera who was rather sort of tight conductor, rather over-controlling. And uh, Gooey came and took over the opera. And one of the players said, when Gooey came, it's as if he took a lid off the orchestra and let all the music out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm, you will know as a player, and I will know as a player, the degree to which I'm being allowed to be myself artistically. Mm. And of course, that's the problem. If you allow everyone to be themselves, there's chaos. If you allow no one, if, if you're too controlling, it's tight, uncreative, and lacking in warmth. Mm. So you're forever, as a conductor, steering between the two extremes, bar by bar. Mm. That's right, yeah. yeah. You know, and that, that's the art, mm. or part of the art. There's an analogy I use when I talk to 
students at the conservatory in Birmingham or our two other conductors, which is about walking into an orchestra and the, what the orchestra gives you is very much like a cake. And you take the cake and you look at it and then you decide, well, maybe I should turn this into a three-tiered cake, not a two-tiered cake, and I'll change the chocolate icing for some uh, you know, marzipan and add hundreds of thousands. But basically what you shouldn't do is pick up the cake, open the pedal bin, throw it away and make yourself a new cake because it's exactly like you just said. <laughs> it's, it's, it's too tight, you know. Um, yes. make, make sure that you, you listen to what you're given and then, and then you know, mould it, shape it, change it from a round cake to a square cake, but at least you know, work with what you're given. Yes, I love that. That's a great analogy. Mm. And I, something else that um, often the conductor's effect on the orchestra cannot be detected by the players. Oh, that's, that's really that's important. That's true. I mean, yeah. I, you know, a good conductor can change the sound of an orchestra in a few minutes and the orchestra won't notice. That's very true. But the public will, or someone sensitive out front will notice. Mm. And very often, uh, the sound will change because of the way you conduct, the way you use your hands, the way you use your stick, your personality, what comes out from you will affect everything. And mm. it's not always necessary to stop and say a little more violas, a little less trumpet. Can we have that B flat a bit louder in that chord, please? I want that longer. Uh, there is a bit of that in rehearsing, but a lot of it, they learn to read you, don't they? Because mm. sitting in the orchestra, I mean, I don't know how we all did it. You may look back and think, how did I do it? You're reading the part and you're reading the conductor. Mm, and a good right. orchestral player can be reading the bottom line of the part and still see the conductor. Mm, absolutely. And uh, you could do that. You could do that. Of course yeah. you could. Yeah. And, and Previn, Previn made a marvellous comment. Um, the amateur looks without seeing, the professional sees without looking. Oh, that's a wonderful now, comment. Well, it's a little un it's a little unfair on amateurs because there's some wonderful amateur players yes. who are as good as professionals. But the point he's making, the professional sees without looking, and therefore um, we don't. I I always say, oh, don't didn't that lovely conduct? He was jumping around. The orchestra obviously adored him. Wait a minute, no one smiled at Toscanini, mm. <laughs> no one smiled at Reiner. And we have to get the best out of the orchestra, but we're not actually required to provide a floor show to keep the musicians entertained. <laughs> and we True. certainly are not required to provide a floor show to keep the audience entertained. I love that conductor. He was dancing in the Beethoven. What? Mm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, yeah. That's not what it is. And mm. what worries me, this is a little bit of a crusade I may be on, rightly or wrongly. I hope I'm right. We are teaching people to listen with their eyes. <laughs> and that's not what music is. I mean, no. I love watching orchestras. I particularly love in the audience because you're looking at people when they're not playing. And that mm. is very interesting because if there's a conductor, you're only looking at people when they are playing. Mm. But when you're that's in right. the audience, you're looking at the trombone when he's blowing the gravy out of the end of his instrument. <laughs> you, know? you can look at other things. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I think that it's, it's music is mainly for the ears. Mm. And, and we have to really guard that as an artistic principle. Here, here, you took the exact words out of my mouth that, you know, people do listen with their eyes way too much. And soloists, the agony, 
a violin soloist playing the Max Brooks, the agony on the face. Mm. Rachmaninoff, piano concerto. Oh, look, look how he's feeling it. Well, the greatest pianists I played with were Radu Lupu, Curzon, mm. you know, the people like that, Andras Schiff, mm. um, John Lill. They look, they don't look uninvolved, but you don't get any of the antics at all. As I said earlier, many orchestras in America, four of which um, you were boss of, and also then BBC Scottish and Northern Symphonia. Um, obviously, uh, being a music director was a job, uh, a job that you liked. Did you like every aspect of it, not just being the music director and choosing the programmes, but also the the day-to-day -day running, the hiring and firing? Yes, I did like it. I did. There's one thing I hated. And that is a day of auditions when no one's good enough. Mm, yeah, you yeah. go home depressed. Well, I went home, we went home, depressed out of our minds. <laughs> but a day of auditions when you pull out a plum to get someone really good, that is very, very satisfying. Mm. Now and again, you have to deal with personnel issues. You have to call someone in and say, look, I'm not happy and so on. And I had to do that occasionally, and no one enjoys that conversation. But, uh, you know, if you're running an orchestra, not social services, now and again, mm. you have to say things that people may not want to hear. Mm. But um, if you are generally seen as a reasonably honest broker who um, admits when they make mistakes, uh, people will take a surprising amount of criticism and suggestions, as long as you do it right. Mm. And I th also mentioned something there. Every conductor should be able to apologize handsomely to an orchestra. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, some people, <laughs> this, is, this isn't just, this is life. Some people I know cannot apologize. And I've never understood that. No. I mean, for some people, it's self-esteem suicide to apologize. And I don't know where they learned that from. But you know, I made a set, Major, I'm really sorry. This is just too fast and it's my fault. Can we start it again, please? Sorry about that. Mm. Now, I don't know any player who would uh, resent that. We all make mistakes. I totally agree with it. Um, and one of the things I learned in early conducting lessons is if you're going to stop an orchestra and redo something, you must tell them why. And I, oh, yes. and I see no shame at all in turning around and saying, I'm really sorry. Can we do that again? And it's purely for my benefit because I screwed that up. Yes, I can do that one more time. This time is for the conductor. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, as long as the orchestra the orchestra knows why you're stopping them and, and what you know what the reason is, there's yes. there, there, yes. nothing wrong with showing people that you're a human being, and we all make mistakes. Nobody is above Absolutely. you know above Absolutely that. Right. And whilst we're talking about that, conducting lessons, teaching. How important for you is teaching been? Well, I've loved it. You see, I didn't do very much at all because I thought it was unteachable. Right. Um, but I came to the conclusion that it's it's unteachable, but it's not unlearnable. Yes. And I, if <laughs> you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I'll tell you how it came about. Occasionally, I used to go into the guild hall and and make suggestions for the. But I never felt that starting a school of teaching and becoming a cult and a guru was quite me, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So anyway, um, 
I was going, I had some work in Australia with two of the orchestras and I had a couple of weeks free between them. And it's an awfully long way to go to and fro around the world within. For, and so I said to um, the agent, can you find out, is there anything over there I can do for young conductors? And they asked and they said, absolutely. They have a conductor's development program paid for the Australian government where you get half a dozen conductors for five days. The last two days are two double rehearsal days with one of the orchestras, like the Melbourne Symphony or the Brisbane. You know, it's, I mean, really, it's an incredible one. And the Australian government pay for it. And um, I'd never heard of such a thing. And it had been run by Yorma Panula, oh, who's a yes. very well-known teacher of conducting. Mm. And he decided he'd had enough flying halfway around the world at his age although he's still active, I hate, I hope. Mm. And um, so I, I, I did it for one. And they said, that's it, you're the man. So I went over every year and um, did, did some teaching. But we did it very strictly. We auditioned them mm. uh, before they were let in. And first of all, I found out whether they were musical. They'd have to play anything on any instrument. And if it was unmusical, we weren't interested. Then I gave them ear tests, quite tricky ones, mm. uh, recognition of a tune, things like that, sit at the piano, viola clef, clarinet in A, simple stuff, but mm. they had to be able to do, if they could do all that, we accepted them. And the course was a couple of days with two professional pianists, which is not an orchestra, but you can mess up with two professional pianists if they follow you, you see, mm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and don't rescue you. I used to say, don't rescue them, follow them. <laughs> And then they'd have a small ensemble, which would be one of each strings, one of each woodwind and a horn, which is not an orchestra, but it's enough oh. to get it right with and it's enough to get it wrong with. Then they'd have the orchestra for a couple of days. And I'll tell you something wonderful. The players, the professional players, loved it oh. because for the first time in their lives, they were able to watch conductors being sorted out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, and one I went to one orchestra, and um, afterwards, one of the one of the principal players came up and said, huh, "I wish you'd come and sort out some of the stuff we get here." Huh. And uh, after another one, um, I I always had them do a concerto because if you can't accompany, there's something wrong with the way you do the symphony. I feel that very strongly, mm. and uh, and you will know that as a player. Yes. So um, that. We, we had Grieg Piano Concerto, which is fairly tricky. And I put three or four of them up in front of the, one of the orchestras and a good, good soloist came in. And when it was over, a principal wind player came up and said to me, you may be interested to know that three of your kids accompany better than our principal conductor. <laughs> now that was a very unprofessional thing to say, mm. but I immediately said, oh, well, yes. Now, do you think it's going to rain? I mean, I wasn't going to get into that. <laughs> at all but it was very nice to hear it, it's interesting isn't it i mean the amount of times and, it, and it's many that a new conductor would come to the cbso in the morning break on monday morning i'd go outside with the other smokers um and <laughs> and they would say oh isn't this guy or this lady wonderful and i and what do you think mike and i would often say well almost every time say ask me tomorrow afternoon in the break that's because right. Tuesday afternoon was always the session with the soloist, with the concerto, and then they'd come out 
having forgotten that they'd said how wonderful they were on Monday morning in the break and come out and say, oh my God, this guy's terrible. And I'd say, uh, well, uh, hang uh, on a minute. Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you, we've all yeah. been there. Absolutely, yeah. We've it's, all been there. Yeah. Yes. And so I, very, very I always waited until Tuesday afternoon to, to, to offer an opinion, if, if asked, on what I thought of a conductor. Because it's the, accompanying is the, is the, you know, the, the, one of the hardest things we do, if not the hardest thing we do, you know, to, to be able to read the mind of a soloist or bend and sway in the breeze with them. So when you say you um, unteachable but learnable, did that mean that you were concentrating on specific aspects of teaching, score studying, or it, was it stick technique? No, yeah, I'd always take them through the score, make sure they understood how the work was put together. Mm. Because if you don't understand that, you won't know how to shape it. And by mm. shaping it, I mean certain passages ask to be slightly moved on. Some passages ask for a little time. Some passages ask to be played. I mean, these are the absolute basics, or what I call where to push and pull it. Mm. And if you don't do that, an orchestra won't do that on its own, because uh, 90 people aren't going to agree that this passage needs to move on. This passage needs to little time. Mm. And of course, the, the flexibility is very important in what the conductor does. So I'd, I would do that. I started off, I changed a little bit. Um, I would never demonstrate. I used to sit in front of them in the middle of the orchestra and imagine I was a player and what effect they'd have on my playing. Mm. And um, then they kept saying, why don't you demonstrate? Why don't you demonstrate? I said, because you'll end up conducting like me and you'll get all my gigs, which was a joke. <laughs> but anyway, I did after that do a little bit of demonstrating, but not very much. But there were certain absolute key things that upbeats go upwards. Mm. The upbeat is in the tempo. It's in the dynamic and it's in the character of the main note that's coming. Mm. You see, so uh, you can tell from the upbeat what sound is required. I mean, things like that, absolutely essential. Mm. Another thing I've found, conductors don't understand that the majority of the orchestra see us from the side. Yes. All yeah. the first violins, all the cellos, if you put the cellos there at the basses. And um, so it's very important that the conductor uses natural movements as well as up and down movements. Plus, mm. it puts your bat on in parallel with the bows of the strings and you pull a better sound out of the strings mm. and i think that really is quite important i'm glad i play i played the violin and then i changed to the viola and i wasn't very good but i do i say to the students learn the viola learn it badly but find out what it feels like to pull the gravy out of a stringed instrument mm. Mm. You know, yeah, yeah. If you know what it feels like to pull a sound, you'll pull a sound out of an orchestra. It's something physical that gets into your gestures without you realizing it. So, there are a lot of very basic things, a lot of them in the book actually, that I thought were important. But I certainly did not want to produce five plastic models of Christopher Seaman at the uh. end of the week. Absolutely not. Now, your comments about crossbeats. When I have when my students come to me, and often now it's done with video, and you look back at the video, and I, the, one of the first things I jump on is if I was on the eighth desk of the first violins, or I was the principal bass, far right or far left of the stage, I have no idea what beat the bar you're on until you go up and down again. 
Uh, so right. where, you know, where's the, where's the crossbeats? And the other one, when you're talking about upbeats, uh, I learned the lesson early by watching Roger Zvensky conduct the CBSO. Um, he was that man was all about the upbeat, and often he oh, didn't yeah. even he didn't even bother to give you a downbeat because he told you everything in the upbeat, where it was, what it was, how loud it was, and yeah, yeah that it's such an incredible, incredibly important thing. But that sounds wonderful. It sounds like they got a real training. Well, some of them have done very well. One of them uh, is, is assistant at the Colorado Symphony. But of mm. course, that's the horrible thing about this time we're living with the COVID thing. I mean, what opportunities are there going to be for these kids to develop in the near future? Mm. Yeah, that's a, a real worry, you know? When you come to learn a new score, do you have a method? Do you have a, a set way that you learn a score? And when you learn a score, do you write things in or are you one of these lucky people who commit it all to your memory? Now, I don't have a photographic memory. I wish I did, I don't. Mm. I've got a good memory, but it's not photographic, except that if I know a score well and you give me a different edition where the page turns are all different, and what mm. I'm used to on the left-hand page is on the right, that will upset me. Mm. Yeah. But on the whole, it's not photographic. I read it through over and over and over again. Mm. I occasionally will listen to it. But you, I don't think it's right to depend on recordings when you learn a score. And the good sign is uh, you, you, you read it through and the recording helps you. It goes in through the ears as well as in through the eyes, into the memory, you see. Mm. And um, then you read it through and you work on it. Then you go back to the recording and you think, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Well, that's mm. healthy. Mm. That means that as you learn the score, an interpretation is, without you knowing it, entering into your body, into, into your whole person. Mm. And uh, that is really important. Uh, it's crucial to know what the harmonies are. And in some pieces, a piece like Heldenleben, where the harmonies change very fast, Strauss changes harmonies so fast that you could, the ear doesn't always follow the logic of the chords. I write underneath the double bass part, G7, F, you know, the actual names of the mm. chords. And a number of other conductors do that, I know. Did you ever play for Pavo Berglund? Yes, what a wonderful conductor. Yeah. Well, yeah. he wrote that under every score. Mm. And the, in the second variation of the Enigma, he had a chord number, the name of the chord under every semiquaver. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I saw his score of it. I thought it was absolutely extraordinary. Hmm. But uh, that is very useful to know the harmonies and to remember them. And then to know where, where it's going, the shape, whether it's a passage that is, as I said, is leading towards or coming back from and all that should dawn on you while you're learning the notes. It gradually, mm. it gradually um, works its way into your mind. I'm very lucky. I have perfect pitch, which means that contemporary pieces I, I'm able to sort out. And I'm very grateful for that. And I've done quite a lot of them. But some pieces that are not very tonal or maybe totally atonal, I do not know how a conductor without perfect pitch can hear whether there's wrong notes or not. I mean, it's a miracle. They do, presumably, but I don't know how they do it. 
Um, you've now been conducting quite a while, but I'll put it that way. If you could go, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> if you very delicate, if you could go back to the day that you left the LPO as a timpanist and give yourself any advice from now to then, what would it be? Oh, that is a very, very good question. Well, the thing I found when I gave up playing and started conducting is very naturally, I think, what will the orchestra think of this? Mm. Because I'd been a player and I'd been reacting to conductors. But you have to learn to be a little independent of whether they agree with you or not. Mm. And I, made, I, I managed to do that. But if I'd known at the beginning that that was a major issue to tackle, I, I think I would have found it easier. And the other thing is that I'd have helped myself get from the first beat to the second. Because mm. when you start conducting, you give the upbeat and the downbeat, and then you don't do anything till they've played the first chord. <laughs> but that's wrong. What you do, as soon as you give them the downbeat, you should spring to the side for the next beat. Otherwise, the orchestra will never take your tempo. And it took me a little bit of time to figure that out. But I think those are the two things. Look at people before they do something, not while they do it. Mm. That's another one. I yeah, heard yeah. that. But um, this doesn't sound very modest, but if I'd read the book that you kindly referred to <laughs> before I yeah. started conducting, I would have saved myself a little bit of trouble in the early years, I think. Well, I mean, that, but that's basically the, the, what, I, what my question was, you know, what could you teach yourself? And you wrote it all down in the book, so. Yes. And I, that, what, I, what, what you read in the book was done by me from trial and error, playing for great conductors, experience, watching good conductors since then, and general um, accumulation of experience for which I'm very grateful. Christopher, it is 10 question time. Um, I'm gonna start with the first two as ever. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I, I think what I love most is when I go on my early morning cycle ride, the bird song. Mm. There are thrushes, chiff-chaffs, wrens, blackbirds, great tits, blue tits, endless birds, black cap. Um, I go on a lovely cycle ride in, by the river and a bit of woods near Winchester. Um, and uh, you hear all those this time of year. And I'm hoping to hear the cuckoo. I haven't heard it yet. Mm. But I, I love birds. I feed the birds. I've got a couple of blue tits nesting in my wall. <laughs> and so that would be what I love. What do I hate most? Well, I think the dentist's drill comes quite high. <laughs> if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Now, when you say free, do you mean not doing music? Again, if you want to be, you know, away from music well, is good. See, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, with this uh, with this lockdown and no concerts and anything, the way I feel at the moment would be a dress rehearsal of a concert with an orchestra I love. Oh, <laughs> my goodness me, wouldn't that be nice? It would, it would, yeah. You know, so <laughs> I think it's that. But if, if it's not including music, um, catching up with neglected friends, particularly godchildren, I think I would love that. Um, and if it's places, Prague. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, I played for Charles Munch once mm. when I was in the London Philharmonic. And I've seen him many times on YouTube. And I just adore this guy. 
Mm. I mean, he's all heart, very spontaneous. Um, he occasionally whips it up to death. I might not necessarily <laughs> do that, but I just adore the, the guy. And one of the big uh, influences on my life, and you'll have heard this from probably most people, was Furt Wengler. No, actually, not many people have mentioned Furt Wengler at all, weirdly. Oh, yes. It's very romantic. It's very spontaneous. Um, I don't necessarily do it like that, but I just love it as a kind of music making. I thought he was wonderful. Who would be a favourite current conductor? Oh, I, I'm Mooty. I think Mooty's wonderful. He's a, a, a wonderful musician. He's lyrical. He's, 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 I could play for it. Well, I, I could play for most people, however clear or unclear, but he's very sorted out physically, very sorted out. No, I think he's wonderful. And he doesn't, um, he doesn't do ballet and mime all the time. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? In terms of interpretation and getting the balance right, some of the Mozart symphonies, mm. get, getting the musical balance right. I mean, you'd think Mozart plays itself. Well, it doesn't. No. And um, so that artistically, um, I adore them. That's probably why I find them uh, tricky. But the last time I did the Jupiter somewhere in America, having done it many, many times, I thought, finally, I was beginning, note the word beginning, to get <laughs> it. Mm. So uh, technically, um, well, of course, the miraculous Mandarin, the part that's not in the concert suite, that is very difficult, mm. physically, mm. very difficult. Um, the Rite of Spring is sort of famous for being, but I didn't find it particularly bad, except that the first time I ever did it, I used to wear glasses to conduct in those days. And um, the last three or four pages of the score, it gets more and more exciting and more and more rhythmically unpredictable. That's mm. the whole point, you know. Mm. And I got so excited that my glasses steamed up and I could not see the score. <laughs> and <laughs> luckily, at a crucial point, I, I, I remembered it. But oh my goodness me, so I wear a contact lens in one of my eyes now when I conduct, so I don't want that happening again. No. Um, yes, I, I'd say those, those are quite tricky. Um, so in terms of putting the orchestra through challenging, difficult stuff, I think the Janacek Sinfonietta's got some very tricky moments. Mm. Um, yeah. In terms of getting the show on the road, a big piece for choir and orchestra, um, Belshazzar can be tricky. It depends how good the choir is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, if you have a wallowy yeah, choir, that's yes. it's, it, can't, it can't have the drive that you need. Um, no, that's and, quite right. Mm. So that can be tricky. Um, but, of course, you come, if you get to do a work that everybody knows backwards, the challenges are different. And mm. if you do, I mean, when I do Handel's Messiah, I direct it from the harpsichord, which I enjoy doing very much. And that is a challenge because you've got to play the right notes having just conducted your heart out. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the harpsichord, unlike the piano, you only have to look at a note and it plays. So when you <laughs> play a note, you can often play the next door note as well. Mm. So physically that can be um, quite challenging. So the answer is that I've practiced the harpsichord and it's all right. Well, uh, when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? 
Uh, I would take a packet of Winchester breakfast tea. An Englishman and a cup of tea. Important thing. <laughs> yes, I mean, just just my early tea in the morning. Get out of bed, you know, go have a decent mug of tea that tastes right. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I tell you what has always been a slight cause of frustration, that the people who decide whether we work or not know very much less about it than we do. <laughs> How true. How true indeed. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and and a lot of a lot of um, a lot of um, or what are they artistic people are very very experienced and which is fantastic. But that doesn't happen everywhere. No. And I, you do get occasional people who have half baked opinions off the internet mm. about stuff. And um, yes, that enough said. I think. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I'd like to have been a vicar. Oh, well. Yes, mm. I, I'm a committed Christian. I'm not a saint. Mm. Any of my friends will tell you I'm not a saint, but I do <laughs> believe it. And I'm quite involved in my church here in Winchester. I'm a church warden, actually. Mm. And, which, and someone said, what does that mean? I said, oh, you just walk around looking important. They said, <laughs> well, you do that anyway. But no, I, I would like to have done that. Um, I think the message of the faith is a very important one, and I like people a lot. I don't know whether I'd have been any good. Um, who knows? But yes, that's the answer to the question. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your final choice of meal and drink? Chilled avocado soup, bouillabaisse, and eaten mess, except... Eat, you know, Eaton Mess is meringue and squashed up strawberries mixed together with cream. Mm. Now, I don't like strawberries so much as raspberries, so I would do it. I do it myself. It's very easy. I call it Winchester Mess, not Eaton <laughs> Mess. It's, it's raspberries and not strawberries. But mm. that would be the dessert, yes. And Brilliant. then a really nice selection of really smelly cheeses. Mm. And a, a glass of something to go with it? Uh, well, I mean, a glass of something different to go with each one. <laughs> yes, that'd be lovely. Um, with the cheese, um, maybe a glass of port, but a really nice expensive cognac at the end, a brandy. Mm, wonderful. Well, uh, I am going to definitely try and eat and mess with raspberries because it sounds delicious. And I want to thank you, Christopher, for a wonderful hour spent chatting and... I hope to see you soon. And indeed. Thanks, Mike. It's been a great pleasure. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a young American conductor who is about to start his first job as chief conductor. After studying in Scotland and the Netherlands, he went on to win the Malco competition in 2018. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>